sometimes when people think about law, and sometimes when doctors think about law, they think of lawyers, and lawyers sort of, you know, beavering away behind closed doors to come up with complex legal issues. But really, law is about community values. And so because law is a reflection of community values, it's appropriate. It has a role end-of-life decision-making. It's not just questions of medicine that are involved when decisions about end-of-life treatment are made. There are significant value judgments, and those are ones for which community views and community wishes are central. From the RACP, this is Pomegranate, a medical podcast by physicians for physicians. In this, the final of our three-part series on end-of-life decision-making, we're integrating perspectives from the law. High-profile court cases on euthanasia dominate headlines. For dying patients, their families and their medical staff, the majority of decisions are reached without contention. But law in this field is complex and varies by jurisdiction. As a result, doctors may possess knowledge gaps around end-of-life care, which place them and their patients at risk, legally and physically. Professor Ben White teaches at the Queensland University of Technology's School of Law, where he directs the Australian Centre for Health Law Research. Colin Gavigan is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Otago and heads the Centre for Law and Policy in Emerging Technologies. In this episode, they review the legal frameworks for end-of-life care in Australia and New Zealand and how they differ when a patient lacks capacity. They also debate a fundamental question. Why does law play a role at end-of-life? Ben White's my name. I'm the director of the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at the Faculty of Law at QUT. The focus of my research is on optimal end-of-life care for patients and their families. That's what drives my interest, my passion in this field. I'm interested in good end-of-life care and I think law has a role to play. I'm Colin Gavigan. I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Otago, which is in Dunedin. My interest in this field started back in the early 90s when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Glasgow. I discovered a book that probably, it sounds a bit melodramatic, but probably changed my life in some ways. And It was a book called Causing Death and Saving Lives, and it's by a, an English philosopher called Jonathan Glover. And what Glover does in a really clear, nice, accessible way is to kind of explore some of the categories and some of the distinctions that we apply to end-of-life choices. So, for instance, why do we feel so differently about killing from about letting die? From a kind of philosopher's perspective, he asks, what's so different about these situations and are there differences that really ought to be reflected in law? That really got me thinking about this from a, a kind of intellectual point of view. Law protects rights, and the rights here include the right to self-determination, so to refuse treatment, But there's also rights to have appropriate decisions made by substitute decision makers and by doctors too. I think law also has an important role to play in facilitating dispute resolution. So sometimes there's a dispute that can't be solved. There's intractable disagreement. And our society has said when that happens, one of the vehicles to resolve that is recourse to law. And a final reason why I think law matters and why law has a role in end-of-life care is that it exists, it's there, it regulates medical practice. I think engaging with it is important because that's the nature of law. The situation in New Zealand is, the legal situation here is very much influenced by English law in particular. So a lot of our categories are the same. We have a prohibition, for example, on assisting suicide, but we do have an allowance for other kinds of decisions and other kind of measures that would result in the end of somebody's life. 
New Zealand's very much like Scotland as well in the sense that it's a small country and not a very litigious one. So we don't have a huge amount of case law to go on. We don't have very many judges' decisions to clarify in, in some cases precisely what the law would be. So that creates an interesting situation for lawyers and for doctors. Quite often we're operating in kind of slightly murky zones with regard to legality. We recently published a study in the Medical Journal of Australia looking at doctors' knowledge of law relating to end-of-life decision-making for adults who lack decision-making capacity. The partner organisations who supported this ARC-funded research were the seven guardianship bodies in the three states, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, in which we looked at. The four key points that emerged from that study, the first is that doctors do play important legal roles at the end of life, not just clinical roles in terms of providing care. There are decisions about when treatment should stop and does the decision maker have legal authority to make that decision or if there's an advanced directive does it have to be followed. The second point is that despite that role there are significant knowledge gaps in law. We asked a series of seven questions about law and across the sample the result was about three and a quarter so less than half of the questions were answered correctly and known. Thirdly, I think this can have serious consequences for patients. Treatment can be stopped or given unlawfully outside of the law and of course for doctors themselves. And finally, we concluded that this pointed to the need for more education, especially CPD training, to address these knowledge gaps. What I would most like to see in this area is an approach that is consistent as between different end-of-life decisions, but also one that keeps the focus on the most important issues. I think everyone's concerned about respecting patient choice at the end of life, but we've, there are other considerations as well. I mean, it's very valid to be concerned about patients being pressured or coerced into making decisions. It's very valid to make sure that patients are properly informed about their prognosis and about the range of options available to them. It's very important to satisfy yourself that the patient is mentally competent and not suffering from some treatable mental disorder, transient depression or something like that. But the thing is, they're equally important across the whole range of end-of-life choices, those that we currently allow and those that we currently prohibit. It's not obvious to me that a Jehovah's Witness declining a blood transfusion is at less threat of being coerced than a dying patient who wants active assistance in the form of a lethal injection. The same kinds of dangers and the same kinds of risks seem to present in all of those cases. The kind of ad hoc development of these fairly arbitrary lines in the sand isn't really offering either the, the choices or the protection perhaps that patients really need in this context. We asked a, a range of questions on our survey about the law that governs end-of-life decision-making, so withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatment for adults who lack capacity. There was questions looking at the powers of substitute decision-makers. When could substitute decision-makers refuse life-sustaining treatment? And there was also questions about advanced directives. When did advanced directives have to be followed? In what circumstances would they be valid? And one of the challenges in developing a survey instrument that was legally accurate across all three states was that the law is different in each of those three states. So, for example, there were some questions where the wording was exactly the same across all three states, but the true or false answer was actually different depending on where you lived. One of the challenges of looking across the country when you're talking about law at the end of life is the variation. There is a significant difference across each of the three states that we looked at and indeed across the rest of the country. At a macro level, I guess it's possible to draw out some broad themes as to what the law is. So 
If there's an advanced directive which is valid and applies to the situation, that will generally govern treatment. And if not, the question then is who is going to be the substitute decision maker who will step in the shoes of the adult who lacks capacity? And that's generally going to be a tribunal appointed guardian or an enduring guardian appointed by the adult or an enduring attorney. There's different terminology across the state. Most legal jurisdictions have a default decision maker, a person responsible or a statutory health attorney who can step in if there's no specific decision maker who's appointed. So there is, I guess, some overarching similarity across the broad framework, but as soon as you start to scratch beneath the surface, as soon as you start to drill down to particular decisions and how things might work, for example, when decisions can be made, what powers do decision makers have, when are advanced directives binding, that's when it gets tricky. The status of advanced directives in New Zealand, legally speaking, is I have to say a little bit unclear. We have a provision in our Code of Health Consumers' Rights that says advanced directives have the same status as refusals in common law. Now, as a non-lawyer, you'll be wondering what that means. As a lawyer, so am I, because it's it's not entirely clear what at common law means. It means what's happened in case law, what the courts have decided. But the courts haven't decided anything about advanced directives in New Zealand. We really aren't entirely sure what to make of that. What I would say about them is that they have a role to play. The can be very helpful in a situation where a patient has something in particular that they're very keen to avoid. When you move away from very simple decisions about straightforward treatments, it does get trickier. And there's a danger that people either express in their advanced directive preferences that are too vague. On the other hand, they can attempt to be too specific and people can provide lists of precisely what they would and wouldn't want in very specific situations. But then the situation in which you find yourself may not fit into any of those categories exactly. So they can be difficult. Some of the most promising, I think, advanced directives, advanced statements that I've seen didn't really make any attempt to be legally binding at all. They actually included a more broad statement of the patient's values and priorities and hopes. So if you're the kind of person that worries a great deal about your independence, for example, you can set that down in this document. If you're someone that's more concerned about physical comfort, Likewise. Now that won't be legally binding because it's far too wide in scope, but it could genuinely help inform a decision if one ever has to be made and you're not in a position to make it. I think criticisms of advanced directives overlook at least two key issues. The first is that most of the criticisms of advanced directives try to conceptualise them as making very specific decisions about, yes, I want this medical treatment or no, I don't. But the reality is that most advanced directives also have information about goals of treatment, about quality of life, about the person's values, which are very, very important. The second, I think, is to ask what the alternative is. The argument put forward is that we shouldn't regard advanced directives as binding because there's too many risks or issues associated with that. But where that leads us to is a world where advanced directives are legally binding only if the treating doctor happens to agree. And people are different. People have different views as to how they want their end of life to happen. And to say that there is one right view or that treatment must be accepted in this instance, I think is dangerous and inconsistent with individual choice. This is not to say there's not challenges and difficulties with advanced directives, but I think the better response is to acknowledge those problems, acknowledge those challenges and engage with them. And indeed, that's broadly what we have in Australia. We have a framework where advanced directives are legally binding, and there are limits and safeguards when it might not be regarded as appropriate for those advanced directives to hold.
I've actually contributed chapters now to two books on elder law. It seems to be probably the biggest growth area in academic law, and it's, it's not surprising because the demographics are such that the populations in the developed world are getting considerably older. So the first thing I'd probably flag up for people working with elderly populations is the question of competence, because the patient's ability to make a choice is very much dependent on them possessing the requisite mental capacities to do so. Now, in New Zealand, we don't have a very clear definition for all purposes of what mental competence consists of, but broadly speaking, what you're looking for is that the patient can understand the information that's been conveyed to them, they can understand the nature of the choice they're faced with and what the outcomes are likely to be, and that they can communicate that choice in a meaningful way. Now, when you're dealing with elderly patients, I think one of the concerns is that their mental competence may be somewhat fluid and fluctuating. If you have someone with the early or middle stages of dementia, for example, they may have good days and bad days. So what I would say is, from a legal point of view, capacity might be fluctuating and it's not a once and for all decision. Because the other important thing to think about is that someone may lack the mental capacities to make a really important, technical, complicated decision about a life-saving treatment, but they may very well retain sufficient capacity to make decisions about what they want to wear that day or what they want for lunch. So it's not a once-and-for-all decision. Patients can also be helped to develop the capacities to make decisions. It would be a mistake to write someone off because they're struggling to understand without having worked with them to try and help them do so. It's also worth bearing in mind that in New Zealand law and in the UK and in Australia, there's a presumption, a legal presumption, that a patient is competent. So that should be your starting position. The second thing I think I would say about elder patients is the role of families, because very often that's going to be an important consideration for them. The situation we have in law is that families, by and large, relatives next of kin, cannot make decisions for a patient unless they have been specifically appointed in that role. So they could either be appointed as an enduring power of attorney by the patient herself, or they can be appointed as a welfare guardian by the court. In either of these two situations, the family member, or whoever it might be, has limited powers to make decisions on the patient's behalf. But even then, it's limited. They can't demand that a patient be given treatment if the medical staff form the impression that the treatment would be futile or overly burdensome. And equally, they can't demand that treatment be discontinued if it's a standard treatment that's intended to save the patient's life. So the role of families is something we're going to have to think very hard about. Health departments generally in most states have some kind of policy which deals with end-of-life decision-making and majority of them have specific sections dealing with law. For example, New South Wales Health has released a website which deals with law at the end of life which tackles some of these issues. There's human resources as well. Most hospitals have access to a hospital lawyer or other support like that. Medical defence organisations are often a good source of information about specific queries. And indeed, one of the things we looked at in our survey was the extent to which doctors ask other doctors about law at the end of life. And that was interesting because one of the concerns we had was if there are gaps in legal knowledge that doctors have, asking other doctors, there's risks in relying on that information. The hospital here in Dunedin has a bioethics centre adjacent to it and I know that our medical staff have had recourse to the advice from these people when they face difficult decisions. Depending on where you work, there may be an in-house legal advisor of some sort that they could approach and seek help from. I think it's very much context dependent. Certainly if you feel you're facing a decision that may be getting quite close to the bounds of either ethical or legal problems, there should be mechanisms in place in your place of work to assure yourself that what you're doing is actually appropriate from both of these perspectives. In Glasgow I spent 10 years teaching a master's degree to medical practitioners and I can truthfully say I learned as much from them as they did from me, although um, the money all went in one direction. 
that, that's, that's very, very important for us to listen to because lawyers can get a very skewed and jaundiced view of what these kind of situations are like because really the, the situation only lands with us when it's gone really terribly wrong. So we tend to see the worst cases of miscommunication. But it's very valuable for us to see what happens in the more typical cases so that we don't end up proposing some kind of law change that responds only to a very small minority. One of the interesting findings from this research was that experience can change the level of knowledge of doctors. So those involved in making these end-of-life decisions more frequently were likely to have better legal knowledge. And particularly important is that recent CPD training within the last year was predictive of a higher level of legal knowledge, and that's significant. The other interesting part of the mix is that we found that we asked doctors to assess their self-knowledge of law. And there was a trend that doctors seemed to have a better understanding of their own legal knowledge. So those doctors who said, look, I don't have a great deal of knowledge in this area, tended to perform less well than those who said they had considerable legal knowledge in this area. So again, that's interesting because that means that doctors may have a good sense of their own legal knowledge and they may be in a position if, if they think, look, I'm interested in knowing some more about the law. This research suggests that doctors are able to accurately assess, to some extent at least, whether or not they do need more legal knowledge. And with the finding that the recent CPD training can in fact increase that, I think the combination of those results presents an opportunity to advance this issue. Professor White's research is linked on our website, racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. That's P-O-M-C-A-S-T. If you're interested in completing CPD training on end-of-life decision-making, we've also provided a list of courses and tools, as well as guides to the relevant legal frameworks in all Australian states and territories and in New Zealand. We'd like to thank Ben White and Colin Gavigan for appearing on this episode. The views expressed are their own and do not represent legal advice or the views of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Please let us know your thoughts about the program and our end-of-life series by emailing pomcast at racp.edu.au. Pomegranate is now available in iTunes. Visit our website or the iTunes store to subscribe to the podcast and stay up to date with new episodes. While you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. This helps grow our audience. Pomegranate comes to you from the Learning Support Unit at the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. The program is presented by Camille Merchep and produced by Anne Fredrickson. Next month, Professor John Rasco of the Centenary Institute provides an update in stem cell therapies and why it's become his life's work. When we reflect that one day stem cell research may offer us the capacity to be able to provide for new organs, new tissues, 3D printing perhaps even, for the possibility of organ transplantation, frankly, it makes me skip to work every day. Please join us. Please join us.